0: So, good morning, and welcome to this day of sutta study and practice together. It's good to see all of you. Uh, Today, what we're going to do is explore a couple of texts together, and uh, you don't have to have the books, I brought them for us. And we'll also do some sitting practice, so it's intended to be both reflective and have some time for silent practice on our own. We will have an hour for lunch sometime around the middle of the day, we'll see how that flows. And I thought um, I thought we'd begin by uh, just going around the room and each person would have a chance to say their name and uh, their interest in the texts or in this day long, I think that would be helpful for us to hear from everyone. Why don't we start here? My
1: name is Trevor. You
0: can make it up on the spot. Yeah, yeah.
1: sure. Uh, I've, I've been reading the sutras on my own for a few years and uh, found them to be rich in understanding and listen for my own life. So I'm just here to continue that as part of my personal practice. Um, my name is Patrick. Uh, my first visit to Inside Santa Cruz. Oh, wow. I Welcome. Yeah. sat a few times. Uh, and I've an never really done any sutta study okay. interesting. great
0: yeah there's definitely no prerequisite for being here mm-hmm. so, excellent thank you
2: my name is Bonnie um, I'm interested in being here today because it's a day long and because you're here mm-hmm. and I'm always interested in the even though I don't study them
3: great thanks My name is Joanne, and I guess I call myself a beginner on the sentence, so it would seem like it would kind of flush out the ground a little bit, Mm -hmm. Um, some of the stuff I do kind of in general, and and I, too, am here pretty cute, and uh, and I know I'm sneezing, and I'll try not to sneeze. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) okay. (laughs) As well as I can. (laughs) Not so that's not the disturb yeah. the
0: the clock
3: efforts. But thank you.
4: Welcome. And Susan? Um I'm I'm really appreciating
5: Margaret and uh, I have studied the polycanon in the past, but I haven't been that involved with it recently. I kind of stuck my foot in other waters about six years ago and I really appreciate this class. It's like coming back to some of the really basics they are clear.
0: <laughs> Thank you. We have such a Wonderful range. I hope that's going to really enrich what we're talking about today. So, um, so I'm going to give just a kind of an overview of the the texts in the polycanon uh, to ground and orient people, or to remind those who are who have done this before, or if you've heard all this before, please just bear with it. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's nice just to to orient. So. Um, the Pali Canon is the set of texts that is used in, in the, the traditions of Buddhism that, that look back and try to find the original word of the Buddha so that's preserved in the modern world mostly in the Theravadan tradition which is in Southeast Asia um, places like Thailand, Burma and Sri Lanka most common and it's kind of leaped across into the west now in the in some other form that we call the insight tradition or the vipassana tradition something like that um, the texts are called suttas and we, we all said that word <laughs> in our introductions but just to be aware there are later texts that are called sutras and that's um, just a change from pali which is the language we're talking about that these were originally written in and sanskrit which the later texts were written in um, the Pali canon itself is um, what's called a closed canon. It's a set of texts that, at some point, were stopped in terms of changing. You know, they were written down and collected up, and then um, uh, no longer had things added to them at some point. Although there of course, been some commentaries, and there continue to be, you know, dharma books like you can buy from Spirit Rock teachers. Those are in a sense later iterations of these, but these are sort of early texts. Um, It's a property of the Theravada tradition that it uses this closed canon. The later Buddhist traditions um, have ways where they've allowed other texts to come in and they've sort of made that work in the way that the texts are described in those traditions as um, having later insights or things that were revealed after these original texts and so those are not closed canons not closed sets of texts um, those who are devoted to these texts will say that one of the reasons they're inspiring is that they're the getting as close as possible to what the Buddha actually taught and so that's very inspiring for you know those of us who take his enlightenment as as a refuge um, but there are other ways of other ways of seeing it. Uh, just a brief overview of the actual books of the canon. I don't have them all here. I keep pointing to these, but this is only a fraction. Um, there are kind of... There are the, the canon is called uh, the Tipitaka, also, which means the three baskets, and those three baskets of teachings are the Vinaya, which are the monks' and nuns' rules of, of conduct, So they tell all those rules about not eating afternoon and how they should walk and how they should wrap their robe, and and it gets more complicated than that. But all of that is written in a set of texts, Um, Vinaya, V-I-N-A-Y-A. And then the second basket is the Sutta basket, and so that would be what the texts that we're looking at today come from that, and these are said to be the discourses that the Buddha spoke in his lifetime the sermons that he gave or the teachings that he offered and so those are very special to people who are studying and practicing on the path and then the third basket is called the Abhidhamma and that is a a special set of teachings Um, in our tradition we say that the Buddha gave those teachings to um, devas actually sort of celestial beings but humans were allowed to listen in through his repetition of them later Um, and they're very detailed it's a very detailed sort of psychological analysis of how the mind actually works in terms of literally moment to moment unfolding of how perception happens, how thought happens how intention happens how enlightenment happens (laughs) how rebirth happens Um, it's a catalog or a compendium of all the uh, all the components of the mind and how they relate and it also includes a compendium of the material qualities of the universe, so the elements and the physical. So it's, it's like everything. <laughs> it's sort of the grand unified theory of it. Um, and if you study the Abhidhamma, you'll see that it has echoes of what's in the suttas, it's, but it's just way more detailed. It's like learning atomic chemistry compared to learning you know, structural engineering. You know, it's like the the details compared to the general, more general, larger scale ideas. Um, I'm not sure everyone would agree with that. That's my assessment. Uh, I'm not a scholar myself. I have studied the text for quite a few years with a number of teachers, and they've been very important in my own practice. And. I've begun to share them with others, and, um, you know some of the teachers I've studied with are Shiva Catherine, who has done um, work directly with the Kubody, and also um, her own detailed work with Paul Oxide, uh, and also Gil Fronstahl, who is himself a scholar and has, is my main teacher. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've been taking courses for credit with him through a graduate school, so you know, that's kind of my intellectual background but um, I'll say also that I was telling Bonnie earlier when we arrived I wasn't always intellectually interested I didn't start out intellectually interested in the texts. I was really I read them much more for my practice and for the inspiration of them and I even shied away actually from learning about them from an intellectual perspective for a long time because I felt like it might somehow interfere with my ability to really meet them on a heart level and, and then later there came this interest in incorporating them into my intellectual understanding so that, that was kind of the order it went in for me but I think it goes in different ways for different people okay and then just um, to give a little overview specifically of the basket called the suttas um, just so that we're oriented to that so you get the picture there's the three baskets we're in the basket of the suttas now and within that there are texts that are called Nikayas I don't actually know what that word translates as but essentially it means collection of texts and um, there are four main Nikayas and then a fifth Nikaya that's a whole bunch of texts stuck together and just to say what they are the first uh, Nikaya listed is the Diga Nikaya the long teachings of the Buddha these are because they tend to be longer suttas, I think. And they often have the... um, I'm now using an analysis that Bhikkhu Bodhi did, who's one of the main translators of these texts. His analysis says that the Diga Nikaya is likely the texts that were intended to kind of establish Buddhism relative to the other philosophies of the time. You know, Buddhism didn't just arise in a vacuum it arose in ancient India, where there was a Brahmin culture that had a very specific kind of proto-Hindu kind of um, approach. And in addition, there were a bunch of other spiritual ascetics. The Buddha was kind of a radical live-out-in-the-woods kind of guy, and there were other people who did that too, and they had their own philosophies. And so the question is, you know, what was the Buddha teaching? It's kind of a a, um, text that defines all of that and defends a little bit the Buddhist teachings against other traditions of the time. But there's also some very relevant suttas. It's not only of historical interest. There are suttas in there, um, for instance, the one about the death of the Buddha, the uh, uh, Mahaparinirvana Sutta, Mahaparinirvana Sutta, about um, what happened at the end of the Buddha's life. Um, It also has the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. So one version of the Satipatthana, which we study, is in the Diga Nikaya. So don't dismiss it as just relevant for Ancient India. The second text is um, this one, the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. We're going to read a sutta from here. This text, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi's analysis, the the texts are a little shorter. They're (laughs) middle-length. There isn't a short-length Nikaya. Just I don't know why, but um, and these tend to be stories and. Contextualized teachings, where you understand that the Buddha was in a certain situation, and it describes who was there and the, what was going on, and then he gives a teaching, and so forth. So it's kind of you know s- story-like, but it's not only a storybook. Bhikkhu analysis says this is likely a manual for new monastics. So not that they were reading at the time of the Buddha, but it was compiled as the teachings that were relevant. For people who had committed to the path already, they were Buddhists uh, in a sense, but um, needed to learn what are the basic teachings. So there's a lot of stuff in here about karma, about the eightfold path, about the four noble truths, about uh, impermanence. All kinds of you know, faith is a, is a strong teaching in here. So um, all the kind of basic topics that you would want to know as a as an aspiring young Buddhist. and th- So that, that makes it especially relevant for us. Uh, doesn't You don't have to be a monastic. It's just anyone who's a serious practitioner. So this is a great text. There's a lot in there. And it's in, presented in interesting form, right? Because it's in the form of stories. And so there's kind of a literary component also. And then um, the third text of the five, Nikayas is the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this text is um, really big, it's even bigger than this brown one here, and it's um, very succinct teachings on kind of the, um, the structure of how the, um, how the teachings kind of point toward, uh, toward liberation. So these are kind of, the Majjama is more about overall teachings, the Eightfold Path, effort, faith, Um, it has karma and rebirth, and then the Samyutta is a little more focused on um, certain lists, you know, the the hindrances and the faculties and the um, Seven Factors of Awakening, these kinds of things, and it talks about, and a lot of the teachings really point toward how you would use the text to deepen your concentration. Uh, bring your insights to fruition. So it's considered a text for um, later monastics, like people who are really aiming for liberation in their practice. And so it's also very relevant for us. But the teachings are a little pithier. They are not. They don't tell you who all was there. Some of them do. But the majority of them are just kind of teachings of the Buddha gave, very condensed. Um, yeah, it's a different style. And then the fourth is... Um, the fourth text in the Sutta Pitaka is this one, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the Angudra Nikaya. Angudra means something like incremented by one. <laughs> and I love this book because the, te- the chapters are actually called the Book of the Ones, the Book of the Twos, the Book of the Threes, up to, I believe, the Book of the Elevens. <laughs> um, and they are literally uh, teachings where there's a, that number is relevant. You know, the Buddha will say, Monks, there are these three characteristics. And he describes them. Or monks, there are these five faculties, and he describes them. And, you know, they're kind of, all those lists are really brought together here. Um, The, yeah, the sort of numerology of Buddhism. Um, No, not, it's not really numerology, but these are expositions of lists. And it said Vipassī thinks that this text might have been useful for teachers, <laughs> you know, who need to come up with a dharma talk. And so, I mean, maybe not literally like that, but you know, they need to know, you know, what what can I talk about in terms of, you know, let's see, oh, I know, I'll, I'll look at this one about the um, five ways that one can attain enlightenment. That's in here, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so you could talk about each of the five, you know. Um, so it's a handy kind of manual. It also has a lot of the teachings. Lay people. So I talked about the other text being more for monastics who were committed their life to the path. This book, The Numerical Discourses, somehow ended up being the one where a lot of the teachings to lay people are collected. Um, so it has teachings about how to live a balanced household life, how to um, practice while you are living with sensual pleasure and children and a job. So it's also very relevant for us. A lot of these tech, and, and interestingly, uh, in ancient India they had the same issues with finding enough time to practice and um, taking care of all the stuff you have to do as a layperson and getting all that to balance and work and relationships with your partner and with your children and so forth. So, those kind of interesting things related to that. Also, ones where you learn about cultural differences, like there's a lot of stuff in here about, or some things in here about, you know, a good wife does the following six things, and, you know. uh, Okay, and then the fifth uh, Nikaya, just to complete the overview, is called the Kudika Nikaya, which means minor discourses, something like that, lesser discourses, but not in terms of their content. And it's it's just a collection of, I believe, 15 texts um, that are shorter. Um, One of them is the Dhammapada, which many people have heard of because it's actually used in other traditions also um, so the Dhammapada um, a book called the Suttanipata which is probably one of the very earliest texts um, put together it, it references monastics but not monastics living in monasteries it was more like just people who were wandering who had converted to Buddhism but were still wandering on their own they hadn't really come together and so that, that and other things give a clue that it might have been quite an early text so that one's interesting it has a lot to do with uh, letting go of views you know, which I find interesting and then other texts um, the which was written by collected by a lay so that's kind of interesting the enlightenment poems of the monks and nuns of the elder monks and nuns some it was common at the time that maybe um, you would compose a poem see this in Zen also right more a death poem maybe but um People would write somehow somehow the experience of awakening is so out of the ordinary that it's you don't just, you know, compose a speech about it in regular prose. There's it evokes poetic language and so there's collections of texts that were written by elder monks and nuns who attained arahantship. So this collection of fifteen texts had a lot of interesting things in it also. Sort of a smorgasbord.
1: Yeah. Thought that the teachings were originally oral, and was it centuries
0: later that they became? Yes, that's a nice segue. So originally these teachings were spoken, and they were in fact first collected, so so we are told, um, in a council that was held a few months after the Buddha died. So the Buddha died, and then all the arahants, all the enlightened disciples, got together and recited the texts and kind of agreed on what they were probably led by Ananda, who was the Buddha's, not led, but the texts were probably mostly recited by Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for much of his teaching career, and was said to have an amazing memory, and he just memorized everything that he heard from the Buddha, um, you know, I don't know, but maybe, and um, so he recited all of these, and then people took them on as, you know, I'm going to be the person who remembers this set of text or this set of texts, and you're right, they were transmitted orally for as many as several centuries after that time. Now, you know, you can say, wow, telephone, we know things change, you know, that game, telephone. But on the other hand, people at that time had fewer distractions in their life, and, you know, they certainly weren't living lives like ours. And so I think it was probably easier to carry a text accurately when you had a lot less on your mind. Um, so I, I have some faith that there was these were transmitted truly um, there were other councils later that revised the texts a little bit, it took a while for the canon to close, I guess that's what I'll say the Vinaya might have been closed parts of it might have been closed immediately after the Buddha died, um, but some of these other texts kind of got accreted and there's evidence in some of them that they were put together later um, and in fact one of the texts we're going to read today, this one from the Middle Inc. Discourses Has um, some interesting uh, literary connotations, uh, resonances with literature at the time when it possibly was composed. Maybe around a real teaching that the Buddha gave. We don't know. So you know, are these texts actually the literal word of the Buddha? I think it would be hard to say that for sure. Um, I think we don't know. know. It's an interesting scholarly question. What. It's the same in the Bible. What did Jesus actually say? Well, we don't know. We don't know for sure. We have other people's testimony. Um, for sure, the Buddha never wrote anything down. They were eventually committed to palm leaf, I believe, um, because um, almost out of threat. You know, There came a time centuries after the Buddha's death, stuff in India, you know, the history of India is going on after this, and um, there came a time when, um, uh, tribes and other groups and raiders, whatever you want to call them, came in from, uh, probably what's now the Middle East, but, you know, that kind of area. And there were monasteries destroyed and Buddhism was not in favor at that time. It went in and out of favor with the kings at the time. Um, and so it's, it was eventually driven down to Sri Lanka, um, being kind of the bastion of it and they said hey we got to write this stuff down things are being you know it's really falling away in the main continent um, and so it was written down and then preserved and there were issues then of preservation palm leaves are subject to insects <laughs> for example and so it was a challenge and actually as i learned more about this and i uh, by no means know the whole history of how the text came to us I've just gained so much respect and wonder that this happened because people cared about these real people over time many hundreds of them to get to here over 2600 years um, you know that was a lot of care and a lot of benefit coming to us and so I think there's a certain honor also in reading them and preserving them and practicing them and sharing them Uh, as we just continue this line that began way back then and who knows how long it will continue and what form it will continue in one more thing um, we're we're nearing the end of this introduction Um, these particular texts in the Theravadan tradition there wasn't just one line from the Buddha to us Um, and there were in fact many different schools particularly there was kind of a breaking up and separation into many different schools they didn't have internet technology so you know all had someone had to do was move a hundred miles away to another village and start teaching and there could be a differentiation of the teachings there and so they grew different schools over time, all Buddhist, but they disagreed on certain teachings and certain Vinaya rules and there was competition over time and some of them survived and some of them didn't based on all kinds of conditions and the one that made it up over Bangladesh into Southeast Asia and took root in Thailand and Burma and eventually translated the texts into Thai and Burmese which we have now gotten into English although we also looked at the Pali ones to get to English Um, that is this school called the Theravadan school which means the way of the elders Um, and they were one of the most conservative schools um, and they thought that they were really preserving the word of the Buddha, but they also, um, there's evidence that they made the texts more misogynistic than they were originally, and because we have other, you know, other texts leaked out and went out and were translated into Chinese, for example, and Tibetan, and they were obviously early polytexts texts that got translated and then stuck in those <coughs> languages um, while Buddhism evolved. And so we have kind of fragments of these texts, but in other traditions. Other early traditions that are no longer extant, and that um, yeah, these are a little different. So we don't know what what translation has happened over time, but this is kind of the best we have in terms of really looking back as far as possible. And there's starting to be interest, more and more interest among Westerners in what's called early Buddhism, which is really the study of you know, what did the Buddha actually say. Because actually what you'll hear in a, in a Thai or a Burmese monastery, if you go there now, is um, not the same mix of texts as you see in the original Tipitaka that, we, that we've that we preserved over time. They've changed it into Thai Buddhism, into Burmese Buddhism. It's very much based on the Abhidhamma, actually. And we never studied the Abhidhamma here in the insight tradition. So who knows what the actual thing is? I don't know. It's always just what we've been doing. But I'm really inspired by these these texts, I have faith in the people that have translated them and preserved them over time, and I've just found practically that they're so useful in opening the heart and developing wisdom. So here we are, continuing a very long tradition. You can, I hope you'll feel connected to those 2,600 years of people who've been doing this, because they were no more special than any of us. We can do this, too. Are there any questions about the texts overall? We've already had one, but just anything else that comes to mind. Okay, then I'll just say a few words about our relationship to the text, getting into now the personal feeling of what we're doing here today. There are many ways to relate to these texts. I gave this overview so that we would have just a context, Um, but that's a fairly kind of scholarly, intellectual way to look at them. They are a glimpse into Indian culture at the time. They're an interesting, you know, telephone tree of books that have gotten to us um that's one way to see them another is to see them as practice instructions you know you read a text and it says something do you actually go and do that on the cushion (laughs) um that's one way to look at them they can be looked at as poetry as you know glimpses into the mind of people who were enlightened um how did they think how did they see things how did they express things what does that mean to me um we're going to be taking several different approaches today and I encourage you to find, you know, to, to find the relationship to the text that works for you um, there are ways to read them you can read them from start to finish and think about how they relate to other texts my teacher has encouraged this and sometimes I've done it is to read just like a paragraph or two every night and just let that text kind of soak into you over however long it takes to get through it You can read them and reflect on them and take notes and think about them or you can just read them and read them and read them and put them aside and read them and trust that something is going in and never think about them. Um, And I've had experiences where texts that I just had read um, and I never thought about again suddenly pop into my mind during practice and I think, oh, that's that text I read. And I didn't think it was special at the time. I didn't take any notes on it, etc., but it was going in somehow and so i've started to trust that i've also started to see in the texts there's a resonance between what's written here and what happens in my practice you know i read about uh, an image that the buddha offers like you know the beginning stages of concentration are like a bath man working water into bath powder and this is a real image and he takes a little bit of water and he sprinkles it on the bath powder we can think of flour we don't have bath powder but you know, and he works it in and works it in until the water saturates the whole ball but doesn't drip so you get a sense of what that's like and he says this is like the beginning stage of concentration as we massage the whole breath through the body and it's true actually, having read that I then could experience that a little bit more now did I experience that quote unquote just because I read it maybe, maybe but so what you know, we're all the time we're taking in stuff from the outside and it integrates into our experience. Um, this is how the practice works, and so for me, that the actual language of the text, which has been now now in English, um, affects how my practice unfolds. And I think that's one way that the, the text influence us in terms of helping us to develop in a, on our path. Okay, so. Let's um, talk a little bit about today's topic, and then we'll start on the sutta. Today's topic is called The Path of Transformation. I wanted to share this idea that what we're doing, and I've just described kind of that process, is that, that we're transforming the mind and the heart through practice. We start out in a certain way, and then we start sitting down and focusing on our breath or opening our awareness or developing our heart, whatever it is that we do, and somehow, magically, I really think it's a mystery. Uh, we find our behavior changing, and we find our interests changing, and we find our views are different over time, and we find our, we're capable of different things, and we different things come into our life. Well, how does that happen? I'm not going to tell you the answer today. I still think it's a mystery in some way, but the Buddha's describing, he wasn't describing a philosophy that we take on. He wasn't even describing a self-improvement course where we can decide, I'm going to work on my shyness or I'm going to work on this or that. Although we can do that for short, for areas in our path. I think we can do that. But overall, uh, this transformation is something a little bit out of our hands. <laughs> and the Buddha intended for people to be transformed. You know, He looked at us as beings that are struggling in samsara and because we don't understand what we're doing and he had great compassion for watching this and he really wanted us to to be something different such that uh, we didn't take on suffering the way that we are it's quite profound he himself saw this you know he started out in a life like ours he lived in a palace or whatever the story is that you follow and at some point he said this isn't doing it for me and he went out and he became something completely different through his practice. And then he figured out a way that he could come back and, I don't want to say formulate, that's a little too logical, but he figured out ways to, to speak about that, such that our mind would be drawn along that same path if we went with what he was teaching. So this is not something that just happens in a flash that's what we teach in this tradition, <laughs> or by divine intervention of some kind. Uh, the Buddha taught in the early texts that this is a process, and what he teaches is a method or a path. This word maga or marga in Sanskrit means really path, um, and this is how it comes about. So the path, you know, what is this path? Well, it does include instructions that we have to follow. It is sort of, Prescriptive in a sense because what we're doing now in our life isn't quite right <laughs> because we're not free. We're not, um, most of the time, we're not free or some of the time. And so there are actually instructions to follow. There is actually some kind of effort to be made. And yet, what happens when we make the effort, that when we follow the prescription that's given, is not just kind of a logical Flow, where you say, you know, if you learn trigonometry, you'll be able to take the sine of a 37 degree angle. You know, it's like it's true. That's how it follows in mathematics, but it's not quite like that. We're we're engaging in something that we don't really quite know the result. It's like you know, you're baking something and you don't know what it's going to be after it rises or something. So it's a different realm. What we're moving into is a different realm that can't be understood by our current mind. And so it's a very interesting question how you would teach that to somebody. So that's part of the brilliance of the Buddha that I see in just glimpses of over the time that I've worked with these texts. How is such a thing to be described or taught to someone who's in an unenlightened state that kind of pushes them toward that and eventually allows this opening to happen? Interesting question. Um, So we're going to start with... uh, a story, essentially, one of these ones from the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, I'll pass it out.
4: Uh, okay, okay, yeah.
0: So, the, the sutta that we're going to look at first is this one, the Mala sutta. Don't read it yet. We're going to actually read it together. I, maybe I shouldn't have passed them out yet. I just want to Uh, we are actually literally going to read it so you're going to have a chance to say it out loud this um, sutta uses story or drama as its means of teaching Um, it taps into therefore the way story and drama do it taps into people's emotions and people's imagination and it uses kind of elements of drama to challenge people's views it kind of pushes you a little bit um, the way uh, a well done play or movie or drama will, will do I'll give a little bit of a disclaimer that this sutta is um, atypical it's scholars believe it's atypical among the suttas in this collection and even in general but that's okay you know we don't have to read we'll, we'll read a more typical one this afternoon um Possibly, I'll describe this a little more later. But possibly, it was composed as something to be performed uh, as a play, actually. But and so it's likely that this was put together as literature, um, maybe not literally true. And that's one of the elements we're going to talk about today: is how we relate to suttas that have these dramatic elements in them or are story-like in how they're teaching. You know, what do we do with that? And we have a Zen person here I'll say that later um, texts got even more even more dramatic Zen, some of the Zen some of the Tibetan texts have these you know 27 heavens and the Buddha with 500 attendant retinue and these fantastically dramatic things and you know I don't know that they're meant to be taken literally but they do something to the mind to read those And we don't have anything kind of that garish in the Theravadan tradition but um you know, this text has a little bit of that in there, so it's kind of kind of interesting and exciting for me as, you know, as a student of this. Okay, so, um, so we're going to begin. So, because we learned that this was an oral tradition, I have certainly found in studying the sutras that it really helps to hear it <laughs> and to, um, yeah, and to. Uh, do it in that verbal way. Not, it's nice to read it also on you know, quietly. But so we're actually going to going to read this piece by piece and kind of talk about it as we go along. I don't know if we'll literally read the whole thing or if I'll summarize some sections. We'll just kind of see how it goes. How about that? So, um, who would like to to begin? Maybe Trevor. Sure. Okay. So begin, and I'll let you know when to pause. Okay.
1: Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Sabati in Jettus Grove, Amethatundika's Park. Now on that occasion, there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasanadi of Kosala named Agungala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people. And he wore their fingers as a garment
0: Okay, we'll pause there for a moment. <laughs> so this is the setup. <laughs> you know, it's like telling you the, the yeah, the basis. And so it's like wow, you know, um, anguli mala. Uh, you know, mala. That's like a, a necklace or a. You, see, you've got one on. That's a mala. So mala beads. Um, and anguli means finger. So this was he was said to cut off the finger of a finger from each person that he murdered and wear it as a necklace. Around his neck, there's kind of a story. I won't tell you the whole story of Angulimala, but um, apparently he was uh, uh, actually a, um, a follower, I believe, of another teacher who gave him the task of um, doing these murders. A teacher in another tradition, and so he and he was so faithful to that teacher that he took it on as you know, as his spiritual task to do this. Um, and he used to be named, I think, Ahimsa, which means harmless. That was his maybe original name. So he's an interesting guy. He's got kind of a funny psychology going into this. Um, don't worry about the pronunciation of the Pali words. He did great, actually. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're not we're not worried about that today. And so he's this guy's set up as a real villain, right? He's constantly murdering people. I mean, so this is a little dramatic um and so, so the setup is that the Buddha is going to probably encounter this guy. Okay, so um, let's keep reading. Would anyone else like to, to pick up? Okay,
3: sure. thank you. Uh,
1: then when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Sabati for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Sabati and had returned from his alms round, After his meal, he set his resting place in order, and taking his bowl and outer robe, set out on the road, leading towards Angulimala. Cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers saw the Blessed One walking along the road, leading towards Angulimala, and told him, Do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40, but still they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence. For the second time, for the third time, the cowherds, shepherds, plowmen, and travelers told this to the Blessed One, but still the Blessed One went on in silence.
0: Okay, so let's pause there for a moment. So um, so we've seen, so here's a little bit more of the setup, right, explaining, it's starting to get a little bit fantastical, right? One man who can kill groups of up to 40 people and... You know, hasn't been caught after all this time. So we, but we accept that. This is part of the setup. And, um, the Buddha ignores the warnings to not go that way. And in this last paragraph that you read for the second time, dot, 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 for the third time, this is something that's done in the suttas, is these dot, 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 these illusions of, um, repetition. Because this was an oral tradition, so what it means is for the second time it would say, the cowherds, shepherds, famine, and travelers, and then you pick up there, saw the blessed one walking along the road leading towards the good mala and told him, blah, 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 and that would have all been quoted. Um, And then for the third time, and this was even elided to say, told this to the blessed one, but it would have had that whole text there. And this is likely because it was an oral tradition and it was easier to remember if you just repeated the same thing again and again several times. And it's also... I mean, I think that's the main reason that there's a lot of repetition in the suttas, but another reason is that certain sections are repeated because they might actually be important. (laughs) You know, they're they're said multiple times because, I don't know about you, but I have to hear the Dharma many times, and sometimes I've heard something many, many times, and I'm still not doing it because my mind hasn't quite gotten it. You know, Um, it's a process. Okay, so... I don't know if that's the case in, in this one. This is maybe more just a repetition for memorization. But there's also a tradition in the in Buddhist texts that if something is done three times, that's kind of the end of it. If you ask the Buddha something three times, he either he has to respond the third time, even though he might say on the first two, don't ask that, or don't, it's not the right time. But if you ask again, don't ask that, it's not the right time. And if you ask a third time, he has to respond. <laughs> so three times is kind of a magic number. So this is clear that the Buddha's gonna go on because three times he went on in silence. So that's it. You know, he's gonna go on. Okay, so who would like to pick up the reading as four?
1: Like
0: he went on in silence. Yeah, he just he didn't even respond. So how do you interpret that?
1: Well it's it's like as as it keeps growing more fantastical 20, 30, even forty, he has no reactivity to the fantasy or the it's like creating a juxtaposition how a normal person might respond like in fear or mm-hmm. terror or worry so carry on Good, no yeah. reactivity mm-hmm. <laughs> no fear I like it
0: yeah. maybe we'll just keep going around would you like to go on Bonnie? <laughs> the
2: bandit um, say, say it one time it's
0: Angulimala. Thank
2: you. <laughs> the bandit on Mala saw the blessed one coming in the distance When he saw him, he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, and even 40, but still they have fallen into my hands. But now this recluse comes alone, unaccompanied, as if forcing his way. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though running as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, formerly I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it, I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it, I could catch up even with a swift chariot and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift deer and seize it, but now, though I am running as fast as I can, I can, cannot catch up with this Recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One. Stop, Recluse. Stop, Recluse. I have stopped on Uimala, You stopped too.
0: Okay, let's pause there for a moment, actually. So this is interesting, right? So now we have the encounter between them. So first we get a little glimpse at Ankubi Mala saying, It is wonderful, it is marvelous. <laughs> that's kind of an interesting response. You know, first he's all excited, oh one more person I can kill. Um, and I think the drama is that he was supposed to kill a thousand people. I think he had done nine hundred and ninety nine and then <laughs> the Buddha came. <laughs> I think the, the yeah, the myth goes like that. And so so he prepares to kill him and then it says that the Buddha performed a feat of supernormal power, um, you know, such that he was walking but the Mala couldn't catch him. This is, uh, again, another disclaimer. This is very unusual in the suttas. There aren't very many occasions where the Buddha performs feats of supernormal power. There are other ones besides this one, but um, not too many. And so that's another hint that this was not a common way of... uh, Describe you know common way that the Buddha taught probably he didn't go around just performing feats of supernormal power all the time, um, and the uh, the bandit's response is interesting he also says it's wonderful it's marvelous <laughs> and is sort of amazed by this. Um, it's kind of humorous. It is kind of humorous yeah mm-hmm. it's set up I think we're supposed to be kind of getting into it at this point oh okay this is kind of interesting and you know what's going to happen now right we're getting we're getting pulled on a little bit in this and it is yeah it is kind of interesting so then there's this interesting line I really like this one where he he calls out in a very ordinary way stop recluse stop recluse just because he couldn't catch up and the Buddha turns and the Buddha who always speaks on many levels turns and says I have stopped You stop Mm to. What do you think that refers to? I think it
1: refers to cessation of It could.
0: It could refer all the way to yeah to the cessation of experience and through attainment of nirvana What else could it refer to? I think it actually has multiple.
1: Mm -hmm. Stop your murderous
0: way. Yeah, so stopping. Unethical conduct, um, and saying very clearly, "You got to stop what you're doing." It's interesting, right? The Buddha um, never misses a chance to teach. I mean, he, he really thought he could help this guy. Out uh, of, he, I mean, he didn't need to. He could have gone the other way or whatever, advised the king to put more soldiers out there or something. But he thought, you know, he thought his way to help this guy was to try to teach him. So he says, I've stopped. We're going to see more about that later. Um, yeah, so we'll skip the next paragraph. It says, you know, the says, I wonder what that means, essentially. And so then um, then there's a kind of an exchange between the two in verse, which is set off um, as the kind of special language. So um, Joanne, could you read the verse?
3: Then the bandit Abu thought these recluses, sons of the psyches, speak truth, assert truth. But those recluses still walking, he says, I have stopped Abu Lama. You stop too. Suppose I question this recluse. Then the bandit Abu Lama addressed the blessed one and stands it thus. While you were walking in you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say, I have not stopped. I ask you now, O recluse, about that like meaning. How is it that you have stopped and I have not?
0: I, have I, have I can't
3: get that one. I have stopped forever. I, I extend in violence towards living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that live. And that is why I have stopped when you have not. Oh, at long last this reckless, venerated sage has come to the straight far, so I say, I just this great cause for my sake. Having heard your stanzas teaching you the dharma, I will redeem now, evil forever.
0: You can go to the end of the verse. You may go, great king, at your own convenience. Oh, no, you um, skip I know. the page. Yeah. Yeah. So saying,
3: the bandit took his sword and weapon and swung them, and they gleamed as he did. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet, and then in there asked for the going forth. The enlightened one, the great sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words: "Come, be who." And that was how he came to be the bhikkhu. Okay, great.
0: So this is a, a big turning point in the story. It comes early, actually. Let's just go over some of the words. Um, first of all, the word bhikkhu that said at the very end, that's a word for a Buddhist monk. So um, he's, come, he's become a monk. So first he questions him about this stopping because he says, oh, they always speak the truth, but he's told me that he has stopped and I haven't when he's the one walking. It's confusing, and so he, he, you know, on a literal level, it doesn't make sense, so he asks him. And then um, the Buddha asserts, I have stopped forever. I have abstained from violence. So that was one of the meanings that we thought of. I, that doesn't mean that the total cessation meaning is not there. It may mean that Angulimala wouldn't understand that. And so if he doesn't, you know, I have stopped forever could mean a lot of things. And so, um, interestingly, this one, like he gets attention from the Buddha. Um, this one phrase, where the Buddha says in the book, "This is how it is. I have you have no restraint. I have stopped, and you have not." And suddenly, something happens. And Billy Wallace says, "Oh, this venerated sage has come to the great forest for my sake." And, you know, he suddenly he feels like the teaching is for him. This is, um, in some ways, you could say, well, that's kind of arrogant. Um, But how many of us have been to a Dharma talk and felt like, oh my gosh, the teacher is speaking to me, (laughs) you know? This is a common feeling, is that there's some resonance. Um, And so I I prefer to interpret it that way, is that he just just heard something. There was something in him that was ready to wake up. And when the Buddha addressed him, that came alive. And so it's a little dramatic. He says, having heard your stanza, I will renounce evil forever. You know, the Buddha says, I've stopped. And he says, great, I'm going to do it too. If only it were that easy, right? Um, but, and then to, you know, make it clear that's what he's doing, he throws his sword and weapons away and asks to become a monk. Interestingly, that um, the Buddha thinks this is normal, <laughs> and says, come bhikkhu, which means he's addressed him as a monk, he's made him a monk. This is the early way that people became monastics, you know, now we have the whole ceremony and you have to have a preceptor and all of this, um, but when the Buddha was the one doing the whole thing, he would just, when people asked for the going forth, he would say, okay, come on, come bhikkhu, and then that's it, they they get their robe and their role, and so forth. So, right at the beginning we have this incredible conversion of Angulimala the murderer to Angulimala the bhikkhu, the novice monk. Um, Well, a bhikkhu is technically a fully ordained monk, but he just starts out. So, um, he becomes the Buddha's attendant, because the Buddha was walking alone before, so now he has an attendant, how nice. Very interestingly. so, why don't uh, Susan, could you start with section 8 if you're willing to read?
3: Okay,
4: thanks. Now, on that occasion, great crowds of people were gathering at the gates of King Asanadi's inner palace, very loud and noisy, crying, Sire, the bandit Angulimala is in your realm. He is murderous, bloody handed, given to blows of violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by them is constantly murdering people, and he he wears their fingers a garland, the king must put him down. Then in the middle of the day, King Pisadi of Prasala drove out of Savati the cavalry of 500 men and set out for the cart. He drove thus, as far as the road was passable for carriages, and then he dismounted from his carriage and went forward on foot to the blessed one. Made homage made homage to the Blessed One. He sat down at one side, and the Blessed One said to him, What is it, great king? Is King Senia of Bimbagria of, of, of Madra attacking you, or the Lycibus of Vasali, or other hostile kings? Venerable sir, King Senia of of, of Magadha is not attacking me, nor are the Lycibus of Vasali nor are other hostile kings, but there is a bandit in my realm named Agamala, who is mur- murderous, bloody handed, and given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. The villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people and he wears their fingers to the garland. I shall never be able to put him down venerable sir. Okay, thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. So what's going on here? it's pretty straightforward the, so the the king is asking the Buddha for help because people are up in arms saying you know oh my gosh there's this murderer and they go to the king and they say you've got to stop him and the king is flustered because he hasn't been able to you know people in groups of up to 40 have been killed by this guy and so um, he goes to the Buddha and the Buddha says what's the problem are you being attacked by somebody why are you rushing to me and all, this, all these references—King Seni of Bimisara, of Magadha, and the Lich, the Lichubis of um, Vasali, and so forth—those um, are just references to other people and kings at the time. Um, but we can, you know, just take them more generally. He's saying, you know, "What's? Are you having some political difficulty?" And the king says, "No, it's all on account of this murderer who is running rampant in my realm, and the people are upset, and I'm not able to serve them and help them." King um, Phacenity was actually of, of Kosala was a pretty uh, ethical king and even made some attempts at meditation he wasn't great but um, yes, there's, he appears throughout the canon and there are uh, conversations between some very interesting conversations between him and the Buddha um, and I guess the Buddha's own people the Sakyan people um, lived in this realm under, technically under this king, uh, as he you know, as he came into power, I think he came into power after. So, um, a, yeah, and well, we won't go into the Indian politics at the time, but essentially, he's saying, "I'm having a hard time with this." So then, um, Margaret, you could pick up at section eleven. Great King, suppose you were to see that Angulimala
5: had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and gown, uh, excuse me, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, and from false speech, that he was eating only one one meal a day, and was celibate, virtuous, of good character." If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable Sir, we would pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or invite him to be seated. Or we would invite him to accept robes, alms, food, a resting place, or medical, medicinal requisites. Or we would arrange for him lawful guarding, defense, and protection. But, Venerable Sir, how could such an immoral man of evil character ever have such virtue and restraint?
0: Okay, let's pause there for a moment. So this is also an interesting section, to me at least, in that um, the Buddha doesn't just say, well, he's not, you know, I got him. (laughs) He does in the moment. But he says, he poses a question first, and he says, what if... uh, you knew that he had ordained as a monk. Dhangar had actually ordained as a monk, and the king's answer is interesting. What does he What does he say about that?
1: It's It's like being a monk is so esteemed that he just gets unrequited mercy. Like all the past
0: is forgiven. Yeah, he he. The king is so attuned to that role. It's like immediately he says, well, if that were the case, of course I would pay homage to him because he has so much respect for that role. He doesn't quite believe it, though, at the end. He says, how could that You asked me a hypothetical question. I gave you my hypothetical answer, but how could this actually be the case for a person like that? So you can ask yourself, um, you know, this is a story in some sense, but we have murderers in our society, um, people who are in prison right now um, for that crime, or people who are going to commit it tomorrow, <laughs> and you know um, how do you feel about them? Do you have a sense like the king does? How could somebody like that ever really turn around? You know, wouldn't there always be that question of weren't they just faking it or? You know, it's an interesting question we, we may know internally no people can change and you know, I I wouldn't ever have that sense but um, we can just ask ourselves internally this is just an internal reflection as how one feels
1: um, about that it's interesting too though because our society doesn't really have the other cultural construction of wandering goods, philosophers that's right and kind of change into the homelessness Buddhism is new in the West but we
0: don't really have that as part of our culture yeah so you could ask is there a role that instead of bhikkhu since we don't have that one so commonly that the Buddha could have said you know what if what if this murderer were to become uh, a medical doctor a celibate Catholic Catholic priest well we don't know about that (laughs) you know a a doctor or you know a great um, yeah a great caring spiritual guide or something, and so you know, how would you feel about them? And then we might say, well, in that case, yes, of course, I would feel differently. But how could that be? You know, <laughs> I'm not saying this that we think this way, um, but we can check in our own heart if there's any of that slight tendency. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Buddha sets the king up, uh, and the king nicely, you know, displays good character. And says, well, if, if he were really a monk, then I would. I would honor him. So the the Buddha then takes the opportunity, and uh, we'll start in section 12, Trevor.
1: Now on that occasion, the venerable Angulimala was sitting not far from the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One extended his right arm and said to King Pasanadi of Kosara, Great King, this is Angulimala. Then King Pasanadi was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, do not be afraid, great king, do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear from him. Then the king's fear, alarm, and terror subsided. He went over to the Venerable Angulimala and said, Venerable sir, is the noble lord really Angulimala? Yes, great king. Venerable sir, of what family is the noble lord's father, or of what family is his mother? My father is a Gaga, great king, my mother is a Montana." Let the lord, noble lord Gaga, Mantana Puta, rest content. I shall provide robes, alms food, resting place and medicinal requisites for the noble Lord Gaga, Montanaputa. Now at that time the Venerable Angulimala was a forest dweller, an alms food eater, a refuse rag wearer, and restricted himself to three robes. He replied, enough great king, my three robes are complete.
0: Okay, so I'll stop there for a moment. This has some cultural things in it. Um, this construction of his name, Aga Montani Puta, It um, takes the name of his father, and then uh, Puta means son of. So father, son of his mother. That's how he would put a name together for someone if you didn't know their name. So he's trying to correctly address him as part of a familial lineage, um, rather than his, you know, murderer name of Angulimala. It's kind of respectful, and he also. T- you know, fulfills his word. He finds out that he is actually a bhikkhu. First he's afraid, and the Buddha says, don't be afraid, and so his fear subsides, another little teaching from the Buddha. And then he goes and he offers him um, food and robes and so forth, just like he said he would do in a hypothetical situation. So he comes off well, he actually uh, does what he says he would do. And then... Um, and then we get to uh, the praise of the Buddha, which is kind of the center of the, of the story, actually. It's like the middle point. We've gone up to this point, and then there's going to be a change after. So the second, actually since we didn't uh, finish this section, maybe Trevor, you could read that last paragraph.
1: King Pasenadi then returned to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, It is wonderful, Venerable Sir, it is marvelous how the Blessed One tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful, and leads to nirvana those who have not attained nirvana. Venerable Sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force and weapons, yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force and weapons. And now, Venerable Sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. <laughs> <It> <laughs> <Yeah>. Comes <laughs> yeah. back to the
0: to the real world. <laughs> but this is um so this paragraph kind of summarizes uh, the situation. So what is he doing in this
1: paragraph? Praising. Yeah, he's phrasing and and summarizing. And, and summarizing and then admitting to the Buddhist uh, spiritual prowess over their physical ability.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting point is that it says, you know, we couldn't do this um, with with force and weapons and yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. And it was all a little mysterious, right? The Buddha gave him a teaching and he said, I will give up my evil ways. You know, it just, it was It know, sort know, of quite that that
1: non-violence triumph over violence.
0: Yeah, so there's a little... Moral lesson here for us Mm -hmm. um, about that. And, you know, tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful. Um, And then, you know, problem done, we're busy and have much to do. (laughs) I love that, this little insertion of I'm sliding on the tumor. So, are there any comments up to this point? This is actually about halfway through the story. And we have, you know, the conversion of Angulimala. The acceptance of that, the knowledge of that by the king and so therefore the sort of understanding that all this murdering is going to be done now and that part winds up
5: Well it seems rather noble to me at that time that they would not continue to make him pay for what he had already done you know our society is quite different Justice
0: would yeah we're going to get to that later there is a little bit of that right. but you're right he doesn't say well he doesn't say well you know I don't care if he's a bhikkhu now he's still got to go, go to you know 30 years plus right.
5: he's already got him
0: pretty much in nirvana here getting led there he's getting led to nirvana yeah so this you're right this does really emphasize sort of point toward the uh, honor with which Buddhist practice was held in this story we don't know if it was literally true in society probably people were pretty similar then as they are now in (laughs) terms of um, but this has been created into this into this story and it's yeah
4: it feels like it speaks to the king's faith it kind of shows the process of faith kind of unfolding that he might have it was
3: yeah I
4: can't think of the word but yeah
0: you're right. In that, go ahead.
4: Oh yeah. Well, I think you got it. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs>
0: um, In that the king. So you've mentioned the king's faith and the development of it. I think that's right. in that he—that's you know a, a valid comment to put in. In that he—he he didn't go to the Buddha right away. Right. He tried the force and the weapons and failed at that. So he had a conventional approach. Um, and yet he ha- does hold monks in high esteem, as he said in this thing, in these earlier paragraphs. And so then he realizes, kind of through this praise, he's not, just, he's not just empty praise for the Buddha, he's realizing, oh, this is really interesting that this was, you know, we couldn't do it with force and weapons, and yet you have done it without force or weapons. So, yeah, it is a statement of faith in the, in the practice and the way that the Buddha is in the world quite an amazing yeah
1: it seems like the audiences for lay people as well because they repeat several times the duties that are, well the tradition of lay people support for you know, sort of providing roads yeah you're right place, even protection I mean.
0: protection and defense uh, yeah. yeah yeah that's not one of the five requisites but it's an additional thing that a, a king could do at least um yeah you're right so there's also a subtle lesson in here of how we should behave as lay people we should be very supportive of bhikkhus we should um, provide alms not mean you know, that there necessarily a should in there but it's just showing through example how a devout lay person responds yeah thank you okay so then we go forward from that it says King Pascenity of Kosala rose from his seat paying homage Keeping one's right, he departed. These are all sort of stock phrases for how you show respect to the Buddha. Um, so then, starting in section fourteen, the story goes on. So like, after. Sure. sure. Uh,
1: then, mm-hmm. when it was morning, the venerable Angulimala dressed and, taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. As he was, as he was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, he saw a certain woman in difficult labor. painful labor. When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted, indeed, how beings are are afflicted. When he had wandered for alms in Sabati and had returned from his alms round, after his meal he went to the Blessed One, and paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said, Venerable Sir, in the morning I dressed, and taking my bowl and outer robe, went into Sabati for alms. As I was wandering for alms from house to house in Savati, I saw a certain woman in difficult labor, in painful labor. When I saw that, I thought, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are afflicted.
0: Yeah, so let's stop there for a moment. Um, so this is kind of a little bit parallel to what happened at the beginning, where the Buddha, he just has this sort of bland description, the Buddha, Blessed One Dress, section three I'm looking at. Taking his bowl and out of robes, went into the for alms, wandering for alms. He returned, etc. And here we have Angulimala doing the same thing. It's just is what you do when you're a monk or the Buddha. Um, and yet he, um, so then he sees a woman who's suffering, and his response is, "How beings are afflicted! Indeed, how beings are afflicted! What kind of a
1: response is this?" What a dramatic change of heart and transformation!
0: Yeah. So there's been a change. This is a what kind of a response? This is a compassionate response. Yeah, he sees suffering and he responds with um, a sense of uh, commonality. He doesn't say, "Oh, a woman in labor. Good <coughs> thing I'm not a woman. I'll never have that," <laughs> or you know, or whatever. Um, he just says, "Beings are afflicted," which is every you know every being. He's mm-hmm. really finding the common humanity there, which is what the good Perhaps, yeah. Although the Buddha doesn't have his own affliction. But yeah, he sees how beings are afflicted. You're right. So there's another parallel to that thing with the Buddha uh, in the beginning, the seeing of the Buddha at the beginning. So he sees a being that's afflicted and, and has a response to it. So in the Buddha's case, he went and taught him. Um, let's see what Angulimala does. So section 15, maybe Bonnie, you go ahead. In that case, Angulimala go to Savati and say to
2: that woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Venerable sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie, for I have intentionally deprived deprived many living beings of life. Then, Angulimala, go into Silati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Hmm. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Anagulima replied, and having gone into Savati, he told that woman, Sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. Then the woman
0: and the infant became well. Okay, so we'll stop there for a moment. Um, this is an interesting section. I don't want to go into too much detail in this. This is a referring to a little bit of a cultural thing where there's a, a, I, there was an idea in India at the time that you could tell a truth, a certain profound truth, and have a big effect from it. And this is hearkening a little bit to this case where the Buddha says this odd phrase about, I have stopped, now you stop. And all is confused because it, he says, I, they tell the truth, but this doesn't sound like it fits the situation. So we, here we have another case of telling the truth. It's kind of a sub-theme in this story. Um, and the Buddha tells him to go and do a t- truth declaration to this woman as a way of, um, of helping her. Very interesting, right? Um, and you know, I don't know about this telling of a truth, uh, being able to cure or get or help a woman get through difficult labor. I do know that um, Bob Stahl, the guiding teacher here, tells a story that he—I um, forget what it was. I think he was quit <laughs> smoking, maybe, and he said, and he, and he told the truth, saying that. Um, you know, by this truth I will quit smoking forever and hasn't, never had a craving for smoking again mm-hmm. after that. So there's something to putting yourself behind something. I think you can't just do it off the cuff all the time. But he, um, yeah, I don't know, this is a, maybe a, another slightly fantastical element to the story. Does anyone have comments or responses to this part?
1: Yeah, I don't understand this at all.
0: Oh, sorry. No. I, I didn't explain that part about. Since I was born, I do not recall depriving a living being, and so he's remembering. Well, I was a murderer, you know. It's, I have, and so then the Buddha corrects it to say, since I was born with the noble birth.
1: Yeah.
0: So that was technically that's when a person becomes a stream enterer when they become. That's what the footnote says. Um, you don't have the footnotes there, but if you look up in the book, this footnote it says it says this probably implies that he had attained the first stage of awakening. Um, in the in Theravada tradition, it said that awakening unfolds in four stages. And the first one is when one becomes a noble person. And it's a certain kind of understanding. But for practical purposes, we could say, yeah, it's for when he became a monk, when he committed to the noble life, the holy life. So
1: you can leave all your past behind you?
0: It's an interesting point. We're going to get to some karmic teachings after this. And so, yes, the implication seems to be the past is gone, although it's, it does have a way of coming back. But this is starting to touch into, this is a way in which we're seeing the kind of literary part of this unfolding. We have a little bit of foreshadowing of, what about the past sticks and what doesn't? You know, the king said, nothing sticks. You know, as soon as I find out you're a monk, great, you're off. You know, there's no, no arrests, no trial, etc., because he became a monk. So in, in the king's mind, that whole past is gone. Here we start to get a little hint that it's not quite gone, because he remembers being a murderer. And so the Buddha said, okay, you're right. To be truthful, you really should say, just after you became a monk, and then we'll have something later. We think about this for our own life, too. You know, We all have, probably not the murder of 999 people. We've all got stuff in our past that we wish we could do over or something you know boy was that a screw up um, I do at least and and so then you think well what is the effect of that you know if I going forward you know how how is how has something been changed if I don't do that anymore or if I commit myself to something different um, what? what reverberations are there still and what might there not be because I've changed course so this is part of this transformation Trevor referred to what an amazing transformation to have a compassionate response yes as opposed to the response to the Buddha why shouldn't I take this reflux's life he's walking along unarmed I think I'll kill him and then he sees a woman in difficult labor and says oh how these ter- are afflicted total transformation of his heart shown through his you know, what he's saying Okay, so um ah, section sixteen. Okay, so we'll read section sixteen. Um Joanna. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Before long, dwelling lawn, withdrawal, diligent, foreign resolute event law, was amusing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now, entered upon in that supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of which the clansmen rightly go forth from the home life and homelessness he directly knew birth is destroyed the holy life has been lived what had to be done had to be done there was no more come to any state of being and the venerable Papi Lama became one of the
0: okay so we'll digest that for a moment so this these, this paragraph is if you've read more of the suttas, this is a totally boilerplate stock description of what happens when a person becomes fully enlightened so um, this uh, this phrasing about you go, you dwell alone, you realize for yourself with direct knowledge, enter and abide upon the supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness so this is you know it's like he, he got it this is what you do all this for and then this classic phrase is repeated again and again when people attain enlightenment birth is destroyed the holy life has been lived what had to be done has been done there is no more coming to any state of being and that's a that English uh, is a little questionable um, there's different ways I don't want to say questionable that's not the right word but there's different ways of translating there is no more coming to any state of being. You know, what does that exactly mean? Um, this is the indescribability of the unconditioned state. And so uh, there are different ways of saying that. But essentially, or if you believe in rebirth, it's, you know, there won't be another rebirth. This is the last. Sometimes people say, I, this is my last body. Sometimes that when people become, and our, our arahant being the word that is used for somebody who's enlightened after the Buddha so they were enlightened using the Buddha's teachings as their means and in the Theravadan tradition which we practice here that is the aim actually it's to get enlightened later traditions um, developed a different aim called the Bodhisattva aim which the aim sorry the Bodhisattva is the path the aim is to become a Buddha slightly different so that's actually to eventually be reborn in a world that doesn't have a Buddha and you become that Buddha and then teach. Uh, So there's, you have to imagine a huge amount of realms and also a long time, um, many rebirths, except the very latest tradition, the the Tibetan tradition says you can do it all in one uh, lifetime even becoming Buddha. I'm not quite sure how that works, but the Zen tradition at least imagines many, many rebirths as a bodhisattva. Developing qualities of character, paramis or paramitas, uh, until one can attain Buddhahood, not arhanship. It's a different goal. Is I didn't. Yeah, I didn't mean this would become a comparative Buddhism study. Has, but you know, <laughs> is
1: is arhant just used in the Theravada tradition that term?
0: Uh, I think it's also used in the Zen tradition, but it's used as the lesser goal. You know, one might only become an arhant, or yeah, that path is considered a lower path to those mm-hmm. who are on the bodhisattva path is my understanding. But I you know, I'm speaking out of my scholarly knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: I think well, I think in Tibetan, from what I've gathered with my studies, is that they don't set that aside. They they encompass it in their teaching.
0: I think that's right. Is that it's yeah. Yeah. The Vajrayana path is one that includes the other vehicles right. as part of it, Right. Um, and they've kind of unified. They believe that they've kind of unified all the prior teachings. Whereas the Mahayana teachings and more Zen teachings came—I don't want to say came out of. There's evidence. There's not evidence that they came out, um, but is an alternative to the Theravada path in a certain sense. Yeah. Although one, I might say that I didn't want to make it so black and white. The um, arahant and the, the bodhisattva ideal does exist within the Theravadan tradition also. A relatively late edition, somebody thought of it kind of near the end of when all this stuff was being put together, is my understanding from having read a thesis by someone who studied the emergence of the bodhisattva ideal. Um, and so it's not quite right to say Theravadans have an Arhant goal and the Mahayana tradition has the Bodhisattva goal and that's the split between them. It wasn't like that. There's this, there this kind of in-between. In fact, um, Bob Stahl's teacher, uh, who was named Thangpalu Sayadaw, he was a, a Burmese uh, meditation master, uh, It said that he was on the Bodhisattva path. And so he was a Burmese, he was Theravādin, absolutely... in that realm, but if you asked him what his goal was, he would say, oh, I'm on the Bodhisattva path, I've taken that vow. So, you know, even in the modern world, we think we get a choice between our haunting Bodhisattva, in a sense. Okay, um, I did notice one person slipping out. Um, Shall we take a little break? We've been sitting for a while. So we'll wind this up. Let's just take like five or ten minutes okay so we'll pick up again at um section 17. susan could you if you wanted to start with that
4: <coughs> then when it was morning the venerable Angulimala dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe went into the for alms now that now on that occasion someone threw a clod and hit the venerable um, ongoing mala's body someone else threw a stick and hit his body and someone else threw a pot threw it, and hit his body then with blood running from his cut head with his broken with his bolt broken <coughs> excuse me, and with his outer rope torn the venerable on mala went to the blessed one the blessed one saw him coming in the distance and told him bear it brahman bear it brahman you are experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, and for many thousands of years. Okay,
0: so this is an important section. This is um, a teaching on karma in subtle form. Um, so what happens? So Venerable Angulimala goes into town, and again, so first time he saw a woman in labor and cured her. Um, and then he becomes an arahant and that's so that's a huge accomplishment by the way to go from being a murderer to being fully enlightened I mean that's like a wider range than I've seen in my lifetime at least and but this time he goes into town and somebody presumably recognizes him and, uh, and realizes who this guy is and so they're throwing things at him and he gets wounded and his head is cut and his bowl is broken and his robe is torn and he goes back to the Buddha, um, who says, Bear it. You have to bear up with what's happening to you. And then he says something very interesting. He says, You're experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So what is this saying?
5: You're still reaping your karma
0: so there's still the karma but is it as heavy as it would have been no yeah so he says you could have gone to hell and if so now interpreting the implication I think is that doing good deeds such as becoming a bhikkhu and especially becoming an arahant um, whether you ordain or not becoming an arahant is the key thing Um, that changes the effect of things that have already happened in the past coming into the present it changes how heavy they are for you, according to this. So he, it, this is just taking the most extreme example, you know, from mass murderer to mm-hmm. arhant. And the, you can see that there's a big difference between uh, getting your head cut because somebody throws a stick at you and um, being tortured in hell for many hundreds of thousands of years. Um.
1: So there's a the Buddhist.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. So remember that hell is an English word that's a translation for what the Pali says. I don't know the oh, Pali word for church. that. But it refers to a lower realm where there's, where being suffered greatly. Hell in the um, Western traditions is a place of eternity. Eternal, you're damned to eternal hell, right? Or you are ascended into eternal heaven in the presence of God it's very extreme in the Christian religion in the Buddhist view of all this these are just different realms and every one of them is temporary hell is temporary heaven is temporary human realm is temporary and those unfold according to your karma according to uh, the state of your mind you're getting one or the other of these things and they just keep going this is samsara (laughs) again and again you'll get this one you'll get that one what is the escape from that is not eternal heaven the escape is nibbana to become, to move into the unconditioned realm and not to be subject to the karmic forces like that. That's not in here. I'm, I'm adding this as a teaching. Um, so, but I think this is very, very interesting because this is not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It says that karmic weight changes based on our actions. This is, of course, it, it has to be like that because. The mind can be changed. <laughs> That's the point. If the mind couldn't be changed, why would we practice? Why would we listen to teachings? It's because there's this possibility. And then it becomes, for me, very humbling. You know, it's like, oh, right, it's up to me. How my actions are determines the weight of the effect of the karma that I continue to feel. And doing something really great, like becoming an Arahant, not that we can choose when that happens. Has an enormous effect of cutting away a huge amount of suffering that could have happened. Because if you accept the whole mythology, we've all been doing this life thing for many, 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 many lifetimes. And who knows? I can't remember my former lifetimes. I'm not saying I believe that philosophy, but I'm getting in, I'm jumping into that world. If that were true, I can't remember all those. Maybe I was a murderer. Maybe I, in fact it says that you were. You've done everything in your past and so all of that karma is waiting to happen potentially um, boy, I'd better practice <laughs> you know. not that I have to become an Arahant but the goodness of even the goodness of his ordaining already had good effects for him and then of course the particular power of becoming enlightened really changed the flow of his life, still subject to karma you know, because he's still in his human body living out this life, stuff still happened to him Stuff still happened to the Buddha too. The Buddha was a, uh, someone attempted to murder him. Someone attempted to split his sangha. He was not liked by everyone. It's not like attaining arahantship means like enlightened retirement in this life and everything goes well and you know you're liked and uh, you never have any pain. The Buddha had back pain. The Buddha suffered, not suffered, but he had pain near his death. So. Right here, in a nutshell, we see a lot of what differentiates Buddhist teachings from Western teachings, and it can be hard for us to hear it sometimes. Um, There isn't a ledger book that says, for every evil deed, you know, you get one black mark, and for every good deed, you get one white mark, and we're going to add them up when you die. It's a lot more dynamic than that, and it's changeable. It can be changed by what we do now. Very interesting. Any comments on this?
4: Feels like it's kind of describing the motion of karma. The motion means. of it, you say? Yeah, I don't know if when he says "bear it, Ramon," it's almost like it, the same stop right there. And with that, that reframing of time—I mm. don't know if that's making any sense—but there's still the motion of past deeds, but in that stopping
0: then you just bear it you don't react it. to it is yeah. what you are saying yeah he doesn't come crying to the Buddha and say oh this is horrible I mean he couldn't he's an arahant that would not be a, an enlightened response it's not about him anymore um, not that
4: the karma is over and it's not over yep but it's certainly slowed down or
0: well it's reduced in weight the, the, the heaviness of the deeds that he did is greatly reduced in weight I really, really
1: like the way that you framed that it's not an eye for an eye and how dynamic it is and how complex karma is. And it's is. very complex, like, it's yeah. We're told we can't figure it out. <laughs> um, it's interesting, too, because I find myself in my own practice really drawn to and liking, like, karmic cosmology and how huge it is. And then there's the Western skeptic side of me, too, mm-hmm. that comes in and I see it say, call it Brahman, right? He goes, bear it, Brahman, and I can't help but think, like, is that an cosmological imposition into the story right calling him brahman I, you know you just do that and so I find it interesting as a westerner who's outside of that culture the way that I experience the text differently mm-hmm. and how our mind has to journey differently
0: oh this is an interesting point yeah there are different layers in how we read the text mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah
1: what would he be meaning by calling him a Brahmin? Well, I know that was the question that came up for me. Like, why does he call him Brahmin in that situation? I
0: mean, yeah, it's kind of funny that he would say that. So a Brahmin... calling him
1: Bhikkhu earlier.
0: Calling him So uh, the word Brahmin means... <coughs> historically, it means one of the members of this um, uh, proto-Hindu... Mm-hmm. Uh, Religion, priesthood. priesthood they were a class actually in the society there were the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, which is where the Buddha came from which were the sort of warriors and the Brahmins were the priests and then there were the artisans and the you know the lower um, or the merchants maybe I forget exactly how they were designated but basically like that and there was a little bit of competition between the Brahmins and the Katiyas about who was really in charge, who was really on the top. <laughs> the priestly
4: <laughs> um, or the, the politicians.
0: The priests or the politicians, yeah. We did not have a separation of church and state exactly, <laughs> although yeah. So so yeah, but so then you can say, okay, why did Buddha call him that? I don't know the answer to that, but I can offer a suggestion, which is that there are other texts where the um the Buddha, the Buddha is critical of the Brahmins in that they are an inherited, a, a hereditary priesthood. You're born into that class, and you're born into the, the upper class. Um, and and if you have some talent for and some intelligence, you'll be uh, taught the Vedic texts, um, and you memorize them, and you learn these rituals, and that you're supposed to do everything right. The Buddha w- thought this was complete hooey, you know that it doesn't matter how you do a ritual. What matters is your ethical behavior, and it doesn't matter um, if you're repeating a text that everybody says is very wise. What matters is that you experience with your own body the wisdom and compassion that's possible on the path. So he was critical of this. He thought it was, you know, not that, not that real. Although he did have pretty cordial relationships with Brahmins, he they were possible to be converted. Okay, so that was a long way of saying that sometimes he started to use this term Brahman. He started to tweak with the meaning of it, which he often did with words. Is that instead of a Brahman being a just an automatic inherited position, he would say he would take what the Brahman represents, which is the noble priesthood of the you know, leaders of the religious leaders of the um, of that society, and he would say a real Brahman is one who has practiced my teachings. Or you know, a real Brahman is the one who has gone into the life of renunciation. A real Brahman is the one who has attained concentration, and he would you know he would sort of tweak with the word and say, um, it's not something hereditary that you just get. It's a result of a certain kind of effort, and then he would use that same word Brahman as somebody who was a noble practitioner of the Buddhist teachings. So I'm not exactly sure why it appears here. Um, I don't think it's Um, like a joke or something like that but it's um, I think
5: it's a way of support for what he's practicing I know Mm -hmm. in the the other translation
0: he just had, you know he has uh, bear with it bear with it okay he doesn't say bear it Brahman he does say Brahman okay so bear with it bear with it Brahman Yeah, yeah so he's maybe implying this is another this is a An exemplification of what he calls Brahman behavior, the noble behavior, is to bear with, you know, it's it's not that you're hereditary, whatever. It's that you're able to bear with suffering, Mm -hmm. bear with karmic result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's reasonable interpretation. Okay, so this is um, one of the really key teachings in section 17. Is this thing about the reduction of the weight of Mm -hmm. bad karma, unwholesome karma. And so then we, we come to the concluding verses, which is a long uh, celebration from Angulimala, who gets the whole thing. Um, so perfect, we'll go one, fully around the room. Margaret, you can read that last section.
5: Then while the venerable Angulimala was alone in retreat, experiencing the bliss of deliverance, he uttered this exclamation, Who once did live in negligence, and then is negligent no more, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. Who checks the evil deeds he did by doing wholesome deeds instead, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. The youthful Bhikkhu, who devotes his efforts to the Buddha's teachings, he illuminates this world like the moon freed from a cloud. Let my enemies hear discourse on the Dharma. Dharma, excuse me. Let them be devoted to the Buddhist teaching. Let my enemies wait on those good people who lead others to accept the Dharma. Let my enemies give ear from time to time and hear the Dharma of those who preach forbearance of those who speak as well in praise of kindness and let them follow up with kind deeds for surely when they would not wish to harm me nor would they think of harming other beings so so those who would protect all frail or strong let them attain the all-surpassing peace conduit makers guide the water Fletchers straighten out the arrow shaft, carpenters straighten out the timber, but wise men seek to tame themselves. There are some that tame with beatings, some with goads, and some with whips, but I was tamed by such a one who has no rod nor any weapon. Harmless is the name I bear, though I was dangerous in the past, the name I bear today is true. I hurt no living being at all. And though I once lived as a bandit, known to all as Finger Garland, one whom the great flood swept along, I went for refuge to the Buddha. And though <coughs> excuse me. and though I once was bloody-handed with the name of Finger Garland, see the refuge I have found, the bond of being has been cut while I did many deeds that led to rebirth in the evil realms yet their result was reached me now and so I eat free from debt they are fools and have no sense who give themselves to negligence but those of wisdom wisdom guard diligence and treat it as their greatest good do not give way to negligence, nor seek to delight in sensual pleasures, but meditate with diligence so as to reach the perfect bliss. So welcome to that choice of mine and let it stand. It was not ill-made. Ill of all the teachings resorted to, I have come to the very best. So welcome to to that choice of mine and let it stand. It was not ill-made. I have attained the triple knowledge and done all
0: that the Buddha teaches. Okay, thank you. So that is it. We've made it to the end. And it's a long... There's a lot of references in here that I think we won't go over. But essentially, this is a long LG to the... um, The teaching that he's received and uh, his understanding of his enlightenment and how wonderful that is, and he wishes it for his enemies to hear the teachings and so forth. Um, Experiencing the very beginning of section 18, where it says he was experiencing the bliss of deliverance, that means he was resting in his enlightened state and really feeling that. Um, Some of these verses appear in other places. You can tell this. Like this one, conduit makers guide the water, fletchers straighten out the arrow shaft, carpenters straighten out the timber, but wise men seek to tame themselves. That exact verse appears in the Dhanapada. So this is um, something that was put together in some ways. So he has this kind of long um, soliloquy at the end, really celebrating his... um, freedom so it all comes to a happy ending if you will but I'm curious um, how do you relate to the I want to step back and ask a few general questions how do you relate to the fantastical elements of this sutta do you sort of ignore them or believe them or get put off by them what is your response to those This, this whole thing is fairly if you really look at it, it's fairly unbelievable in a realistic, like literally realistic sense, and yet there's something powerful there for
4: us.
5: I think it's just, you know, this, this person is uh, really, really living a miserable life.
2: Yeah. And
5: that's very common in the world. They live miserable lives. And these teachings <coughs> have given him some
4: peace. Yeah, at least
0: kind of in the most extreme way, he went from a very miserable life. What kind of a state, mind state, must he be living in to think it's Mm -hmm. a good idea to go murder a lot of people? And then from that all the way to enlightenment, you know, to a mind that's completely free of of all of that.
2: I think the fantastical elements serve a purpose for me and Uh for others. They're Imaginative and creative. Yeah. And, um, speak of possibility and inspiration.
0: Yeah, I would. I think that makes sense. The, um, and they're deliberate. I think they're meant to inspire that in us.
1: Yeah, it really yeah, no, shows the universality of supernatural teachings. You know, there's a lot of times people think are the supernatural, Buddha. Right? oh, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, it, it cuts across all cultures and religions. People like supernatural elements, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And there's a way to, like, uh, to teach to get across the message.
3: Yeah.
0: Somehow. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. It's, it's interesting that... Um, yeah, it is true that people often say there's no fantastical elements in the for the most part the teachings are pretty straightforward (laughs) um, in the Theravadan tradition at least fairly spare in a sense and they tend to um, discourage us from a lot of fanciful thinking and from um, speculative views and ideas about things and yet you know now and then something like this gets in here like I said this is an unusual teaching but um, it has it does have an effect right Mm -hmm. so it's not you know, if, if all the sutras were like this, it might be different. But in a sense, it stands out as one of a few where this this kind of thing is in here.
1: It's quite a, a remarkable literary creation in, in the way that its extremes encapsulate everyone. Like you can find yourself because he was the very worst, and then Andy says, "I have come to the very the best." The so yeah. Such a wide umbrella right, of experience. That any person can find themselves with
0: it. Yeah, we should be able to find ourselves in the range encompassed right. by this. Yeah. So you, you said right there that this is a literary creation, and that's one interpretation of it. And so I'm something. okay with it being that or not.
1: Uh-huh. Right? Okay. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> this is it inspiring practice? Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned something that it did seem like it was a play. Is, is this actually in oh, yeah, um, villages in Southeast Asia? Let me pick that up. It seems like it would be a, something that would be. St-
0: they could be a
5: performed
1: story. You know, or a I story. could easily see
0: this being performed.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know the literal answer to your question. Is it performed in villages in Thailand and Burma?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what I do know, the reason why people say that it might have been performed is that it has a certain structure to it which um, we didn't go over in too much detail but has a sort of a a particular sort of mirror like structure to it where it comes to a point and then goes out and that was the same structure that is seen in Indian literature, Indian drama at that time it's like that was kind of like a um, template that people used and this for some reason stuck in the middle of this book of suttas has this template to it um I think is what it's called. And so, so people said, you know, this might be something that was written in that style because it was at that time, and hence it might, like the others, have actually been performed. Which is kind of cool, if you think about it. This would make a nice drama, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it reminded me of
1: Gilgamesh for some reason. I don't know.
0: Of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. I don't know why.
1: Supernaturalness.
0: Yeah these kinds of religious stories transformation yeah what do you think of a murderer becoming enlightened I love it it
5: almost seems like I've heard stories like that before but I I can't really
0: recall exactly what it was it
3: seems that that it's what also happened
0: yeah interestingly I mean he was creating this horrible karma by murdering people but it is true that to, to become you know to have the mind arrange itself into uh, a mind that's free there's got to be a lot of prep according to this tradition there's a lot of prep that goes into that so we don't know what happened in his prior lifetimes he might have this might have just been one little screw up for half a lifetime <laughs> um, he had 500 before that that were incredibly noble he good right. practitioner who knows what's in the bag for us <laughs> you know
3: <laughs>
0: yeah
1: what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on how instant enlightenment is often encountered in this text and stuff um, I've often had a problem with that not a problem <laughs> with that but I really like I think Suzuki Roshi's response to somebody asked him maybe about enlightenment beats me. <laughs> you know, it's really down to earth response yeah, about. But but in the supernaturalness it i seems always seem supernatural a lot of times when I hear about this instantaneous enlightenment.
0: Yeah, there are many Zen stories actually or Mahayana stories that you know, it'll be kind of an odd scene, you know, the teacher and the student are sitting <laughs> together and the teacher points at the teapot and says, the teapot is full. And the student became enlightened, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, so, and I mean, that's not a, a literal example, but yeah. they're sort of like that in my mm-hmm. mind. And I also wonder, um, so there's this, there's a general question of is it a gradual path or a sudden path? Um, and maybe there's a sort of a general tendency of the the Theravada teachings are more about the gradual path and the Zen teachings are more about the sudden path. But you can unite them by the simple phrase, and this might have also come from Suzuki Roshi, it's gradual until it's sudden. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: right. Yeah,
0: so you know, you go and you go and you go and then you fall off the cliff. But you deal, had to do a lot of going in order to get there. Right. And I think there's some sense to that. Um, there are also... Uh, is that a satisfactory answer
3: by the way? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right.
1: Uh-huh. I still, suddenness. Yeah, I still don't believe in the suddenness. I uh-huh. believe it's always gradual. I see. Yeah, there's never that, in my own personal thoughts yeah. or Okay, you're right. So there is then the
0: question of what happens at that, is there a moment when mm-hmm. something happens or is it a continual change? Yeah,
1: yeah. or they are real, in my belief or understanding, they are really a true enlightenment like the Buddha it was a human being enlightenment is kind of supernatural for
0: me. ah this is getting into a different question actually mm-hmm, yeah. and another one where there are differences in different traditions right. um, in the Theravada tradition I don't want to sound too authoritative but generally there is there is a teaching where somebody sees the Buddha right after his enlightenment and says are you a god and he says no and then, are you a some kind of supernatural being and he says no and he says well are you a human being and he says no actually and they say well what are you then and he says I'm awake so he, d- he puts himself outside of any of those categories so I'm not he, was, he certainly was born as a human being and started that way but I, there's a general um, pointing toward going to something that's different than the human realm different than the human realm as part of the samsara um, and you know do we ever actually get there so that's the other question is you know is it like one of those things where the the, the curve comes down toward the axis and it gets in closer and closer and closer but it's never going to actually cross you know um, or is there an actual you know does it get there <laughs> is there does the goal get attained and different schools I think have different tendencies toward this it might depend a little on the circumstances um that the school finds itself in what it wants to teach generally this Theravada tradition says there is a goal actually and you can get there um, it doesn't say your life is perfect we have to be careful what we mean by the goal You know, what does that look like as long as it has no greed no hatred and no delusion it could be nirvana the, the, we don't define in the Theravada tradition we mostly have negatives it's unconditioned it's uncontrived it's on this, not that, mm-hmm. no greed, no hatred, no delusion, but never quite says what it is. <laughs> Later traditions are a little bit clearer about saying, oh, it's the ultimate bliss, it's the supreme happiness, it's this and that. Um, and interestingly, those traditions are the ones that are more likely to say you don't ever quite quite get to it. But this one says that you do, you can get there, but it doesn't say what it looks like or what it feels like exactly. Mm-hmm. A little mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: You mm-hmm.
0: just have to try for yourself. <laughs> Find out for yourself.
1: I dominant said it's possible to like be a Buddha, or be enlightened and not know it. Oh that's an interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. That you could be awake but like, right. still not sure if you are. So mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're truly awake you might consider your Yeah. Enlightened. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
5: just studying with Minguru Rinpoche I know he says that it's like having a fly between your eyes it's right there and and you can't see it and you can't
0: see it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (gasps) yeah interesting yeah it's pretty indescribable Mm -hmm. what's trying to be described that's why there's this vast literature (laughs) 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 emerged everybody thought they could Maybe do it.
5: <laughs> it, does, it does seem kind of universal as far as I've studied about him coming back to the five men that he previously studied with, and they notice the difference. They, they see, see the difference. Yeah. yeah, first they had planned to turn away from him. That's right, then and then they, they realize that they, they
0: can't. Yeah. 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 And they find themselves offering him a seat and asking for teachings. Hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. And one of them became instantly alive
0: he attained the first stage of enlightenment with the Buddha's first sermon it's interesting that the Buddha didn't instantly like convert everybody he talked to these five people four of them didn't get it one of them got the very first stage of enlightenment but nonetheless it was a transmission because it's said that once you get the first stage you have to you can't go back that's the you no know, point of no return you will make it and then on his uh, later one of his later second sermon actually I think they all became fully enlightened but it's I like that even the Buddha wasn't a perfect teacher initially.
1: Well, it's still dependent upon that person's mind, right? Yeah, those got the their mind. Yeah.
0: So he taught the first first he taught about the four noble truths, and one of them got the first stage of enlightenment, but what really got all of them was when he taught on not self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the second yeah. teaching. Okay. Um just a little trivia point there's a, a non-profit in Britain called Angulimala that works with murderers <laughs> nice. <laughs>
4: nice.
0: <laughs> at least it used to be I don't know if it's around anymore well if it's but in Britain it probably is still there maybe uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a charity or whatever they <laughs> call of it sense
1: of humor
0: yeah so I think that, I thought that's kind of sweet
1: I'm going
0: go yeah I don't <laughs> yeah. know if they're still around yeah please they do are. please do check it out um I think there's something inspiring about even a murderer can become enlightened mm-hmm. you know it's like what excuse do I have then <laughs> you know um, at least in this lifetime I'm not aware of that so, you know, so there's real hope if, if there can be such a big turnaround such a big transformation for this person it, it's, to me there's also a little message of anybody, anybody can do this really mm-hmm. of the wide range you kind of mentioned that So so we're kind of winding down on this. This is a, a, as I, to pull it back to the very beginning, I said this is a particular sutta that uses story or drama as a way to, as the method of teaching, the means of getting the teachings across. There are some very interesting teachings in here. We've already pulled a few of them out, and I'm sure there are more. Teachings on karma, teachings on truth-telling, teachings on... um, not using violence to convert people, teachings on how lay people behave ethically and uh, respond to uh, you know, to monks and the Buddha and so forth, and there's you know there's probably even more than we've talked about. But this is a particular device, a particular way of showing the potential for transformation in all of us through the sutta. Are there any final comments about it? Impressions that would help you feel complete or?
5: I know there's there's a contemporary person who has a similar story, uh, not a total enlightenment, but uh, and I can't remember his name. But he was a student of Trungpa's. Uh-huh. and he was traveling with Trungpa, and he came to uh, the, back to the United States and he realized the authorities were waiting for him He was also a, a really big drug smuggler, uh-huh. and he was, you know, Trungpa just said. Go with them, Barrett Brahman. (laughs) Yeah, he (laughs) did. Yeah, and he did, and uh, he really transformed his life in prison. Oh, I know this guy also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started hospice Mm -hmm. and prison systems.
0: His name's going to come to me about three hours from now. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or two o'clock in the morning for me. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. There. Yeah, quite an amazing. Yeah, and he's done he's in a sense found his freedom within the karma that he has to live with through that and he
5: said he really had to um, to hide his joy and pleasure that he was feeling in his body you know in prison because it was dangerous to be that vulnerable Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah there's also kind of a message of we we have to work with what's come up what life we've Gotten this time around, there are things about it that we can change, and our heart can be completely transformed. But elements of our life can't, in certain ways, and that's okay. That's not a, a restriction on our freedom. Is the way that you know because we didn't choose our parents, as far as I know. So we got that. We got the education. We got we got the way we are, and we can we can manipulate it to some degree between now and whenever we die. But um, not completely. There are certain things that are just unfolding, and I like that this says it doesn't. That doesn't constrain us in any way. The freedom of the heart is something different, and you could have it in any circumstances. Maybe that's another teaching to pull out of this.
1: But right, you could still be hit by a pot That's right. You might get whacked in the <laughs>
0: head, and that's yeah. all part of it. And <laughs> we, yeah it does change our response to things like that instead of going after that person who's wronged us maybe we could say okay I'm going to bear this <laughs> mm-hmm. this is something that's unfolding in my karma
1: I'm really glad you shared this story I've never had a one. with yeah yeah it's a nice like one like the mythology around mm-hmm. it thank
0: you Yeah, there's a lot in here, and this is just, you know, one teaching out of 152 in this book, and out of thousands and thousands, and all the suttas. So the aim for this afternoon, and we're going to have lunch now, um, for an hour, so I guess we'll come back at 1.15, and for those of you who are able to be here in the afternoon, we're going to look at a sutta that is also about transformation, Uh, the same general topic, but it's completely different, (laughs) and it's... Um, it's a much more methodical teaching. It involves a list. It comes from Yanguja Nikaya. It's about the development of wisdom. So be able to come back. We'll see you then. Have a good lunch.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSed dot org slash donate.